My name is Clive. Um, I'm part of the leadership of the church. Uh, I'm married to Sandra over there, and I've, I've been a school teacher for 37 years, and when you've been doing it for a while, they need to get you out of the classroom so they make you a head teacher. And so they've got rid of me out of the classroom and made me a head teacher. I heard someone, I was preaching at a church in Wenin last week, and somebody got up to give testimony, and he spoke about his great apprehension every time he had to go into the headmaster's study. Think of me, I have to go into the headmaster's study every morning. <laughs> I heard about Johnny waking up one morning and saying, I don't want to go to school, I don't want to go to school. They make me do things I don't want to do and everybody picks on me. And his wife said, Johnny, you're the headmaster, you have to go. <laughs> so we do. Um, we are, for those of you who are visiting, are working through the book of Philippians and we're in chapter three at the moment, so if you'd like to get your Bibles out and go there. And I will read the text that I'm going to be speaking on this morning as you're getting your Bibles out to follow as we go on. Philippians 3 from verses 17 to 21 says this, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before now and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. Let's just pray before we go further. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the promise that it changes things. Thank you that it won't go out this morning and return to you without accomplishing the task that you set for it to do. Amen. I need to warn you about something that might happen as I'm speaking, just so that you don't get alarmed. Um, I'm having some dental work done at the moment by a fantastic dentist, uh, but it involves me at the age of 60 <coughs> wearing braces. I have braces on my teeth, which is going quite well. I have great empathy now for my pupils who have braces. But every now and then when my mouth gets dry, I find myself doing something quite alarming, which is pushing my lips forward. And I look a little bit like Posh Spice in a selfie. Um, if I happen to do it in the course of preaching this morning, please bear with me. I'm not auditioning for the new Spice Girls reunion. And I'm not trying to be more attractive to you. I'm just trying to sort everything. I've got, I've got so much plastic and metal in my mouth that it's, it's, it's an interesting procedure. I'm looking forward in six months' time to it coming out, uh, and I'm very grateful I can do it, but it does look scary sometimes. I won't demonstrate now because it's, but it may happen. If it does, pretend it didn't. Um, as we worked through Philippians, Ant preceded this by teaching a sermon that he called Keeping Your Eye on the Prize, Eyes on the Prize, and he spoke about things that we need to have in our lives to help us to persist and follow through and reach that reward which has been laid out for us in heaven of being called in as a good and faithful servant to what God has laid up for us in heaven. And he spoke about the fact it's not wrong to have spiritual ambition. Earthly ambition is something we need to control, but it being keen to do all that God has called us to do and fulfill our purpose and to have his reward in heaven is something that we should look to. And so he, he brought out things that we needed to, to think about such as resilience and patience and determination not to give up. And he referred to the fact that when he was younger, he ran. Uh, now, when I was younger, I also ran. I ran marathons, but not as fast as Ant did, I'm quite sure. But I know that there is more than one thing that can stop you reaching the end of the race. You can run out of steam. 
You can become tired, you can give up, but there can be other reasons why you don't get to the, the finishing line in the race. And I've asked Nick to tee up a little video clip, uh, which some of you might recognize if you're Monty Python fans. So just give us a moment. So there's more than one reason why we don't finish the race. And Anne concentrated last, year, last week on the need for the resilience and, and the perseverance and the patience to keep going when, when things want to stop us. But Paul goes on in verse 17 to talk about finding the right direction. Um, we need to run in the right direction. It says in uh, 3 verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And he advises those in Philippi to follow the example that he has set and to follow the teaching that he has given. And the first thing I just want to stop for a moment and talk about is the tremendous confidence Paul has in doing that. It's very easy to teach. You can just tell people what you know and tell them this is the right thing to do. But to say to someone, follow my example, is taking on a great responsibility, and it's something which not everybody's prepared to do, especially within the church. That's why, because we warn, Scripture says to us, not many should desire to be teachers, because from whom, to whom much is given, from them much is required. And it, it requires a sacrifice in which Paul lived his life every day in a way that enabled people to look at him and see the way that we should go. Just reminds me of something that was a bit of a mini-revelation for me a while ago. We're getting towards Easter, and when we get to Easter, we will quite correctly give thanks and rejoice about the fact that Jesus died for us. But do you ever think about the fact that he lived for us? For 33 years, Jesus got up every morning and went to bed every night, focusing on doing only the will of his Father so that he could be blameless and pure and be able to be crucified for our sins. Every temptation every chance that he had to sin, everything that came across his path that could have led him off, he put aside because of you and because of me. He took on the responsibility of being an example, not just a teacher. And Paul has such a life in Christ, he's so immersed in Christ that he says, walk and follow and see the example that I and others that follow the same way are doing. It's a real challenge to us as people, as leaders, as family members, and especially as parents. I deal with children all the time. And I know that a, a parent can't say to their son, son, you, you shouldn't drink lots of alcohol if they come home in, in the evening and they can't get going without three or four scotches. Or to say to your son that you need to keep your temper, but he sees you shouting at the car in front of you every time somebody cuts you up. And in terms of our Christian walk, we need to be aware that if we are people who are nailing our flag to the mast, as it were, that we have a responsibility, not an onus put on us to be legalistic, as we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but something that we take on ourselves. Paul says he's a slave to Christ through love. And therefore, we should think about the impact that we have. Are people able to follow you? Somebody years ago gave me very good advice. They said, if you want to know if you're a leader, look behind you and see if anybody's following you. Otherwise, you're just out for a walk. And that's something that we, we carry with us all the time. You know, I, I'm going to tell you a few stories in the course of what I'm saying this morning that are to my own detriment, but I'm a head teacher and I'm on the leadership of a church. And quite a while ago, and Sandra will probably start remembering this as I talk about it, we had to drop somebody off at Luton Airport. 
And they've got a drop-off system where you go in and a boom comes down and you've got to put money in before you go. But they didn't always have that. You used to be able just to pull into Luton Airport, drop somebody off and drive out. And on the particular day that they decided to put this machinery in, I was dropping a friend of mine off, a missionary friend who was going to America and uh, first going um, back to South Africa. And I took him to Luton Airport. I can't remember where his next stop was. But I dropped him off and suddenly there was this barrier that said you had to throw three pounds in it. And I didn't have three pounds worth of change in my pocket. So I, I got to the barrier and found it and I tried to reverse, but there was a fellow in a taxi just behind me who didn't feel inclined to let me reverse out the way. And there was a bay that I could pull into just there if I could just get him to let me in. But every time I went backwards, but he came forward and he leaned on his hooter. And he did this three or four times, at which point I got out of my car and I invited him to bring his hooter over to where I was so we could discuss the matter. Um, I, I did so with a very red face and gesticulating with my arms and hands. And then I got back into the car and my wife wouldn't talk to me. And I started driving home and I began to pray, Oh Lord, please don't let anybody from the church or the school have been at Luton Airport this afternoon. <laughs> because we do have a responsibility and God is gracious and I think he probably, if they were there, he blinded their eyes. Their eyes were restrained because I never had any comeback. But we do have a responsibility and Paul stood to that responsibility and chose to have it. And I just thought I'd drop that in as a challenge to you, not as a burden to put on you in the sense of God will get you if you don't, because he's, he's actually, he still loved me after I'd messed up. But it's better not to do that if we take on that responsibility. But let's look at what Paul is saying at this time. He says, I need you to look at people like myself and follow our example. We need to remember that at this time, the Bible was being written. The New Testament was being written. It wasn't written. People learned from people who had seen and who had experienced and had done. Paul had learned from coming into contact with Jesus, spending time with the apostles, and by having the Holy Spirit enlighten the incredible knowledge he had of the Old Testament, and his awareness and understanding of the gospel had grown through that. And people like Paul and Peter and the, and, and, and the various apostles went out and they taught from what they knew. And only later did people begin to write that down, and this is a letter which became part of the New Testament. But as Paul is writing, these people are learning mostly from what people are teaching them. They're learning from the people who've seen it happen. It's the first generation of the church. And therefore, it's incredibly important who you're going to listen to. Who you're going to listen to. Because at the same time, and Ant has mentioned this, well, let me just talk to you about who you're going to listen to to illustrate what I mean. And I'm going to do this to my detriment again, because years and years and years ago, in the constant battle that I have with my equator, I, 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 I'm a yo-yo dieter. I go out and I come in. I'm kind of halfway in between at the moment. And I've tried various methods, starvation diets and, and the 5-2 and Atkinson's, and they all work for a while, but I, I struggle. I've also tried gym. Have you tried gym? Some of you have succeeded, but many of us haven't. And I, I have a love-hate relationship with gyms. Uh, and at one occasion, I was living in Johannesburg in a place called Honeydew, and a new gym opened up. Turned out it was a rip-off in the end, but it opened up and they were selling contracts as they did for three years at a really low price, so I bought one. And I was ready to go. And so I bought myself the necessary clobber and I went off to the gym. And for the first couple of weeks, I worked on the aerobic circuit with the lightweights and things like that. And I was feeling quite proud of myself. And I was getting to do that more easily. So I thought I would take the next step. Because in every gym, you know, they're the normal machines where the normal people circulate. 
And then over on that side, there's the real stuff, where the guys with the invisible watermelons under their arms live. Okay, the free weights and the really heavy machines. And over there were those guys, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna venture over there. I don't wanna look like that, but I just wanna pull the tummy in a bit and maybe put a bit more, you know, you know, cause, cause you know, my wife was looking great at the time and, and, and people were. <laughs> Not as good as she looks now. But people kept looking at me and, and using phrases like punching above his weight and things like that, which was quite hard because my weight was quite substantial at the time. Anyway, I, I joined this gym and I went along and I did the circuit and then I looked at these guys over there and I thought, I'm going over to that side. Now, when you go over to that side, they do a program for you. You get a card. Ever had the card? Okay, so many of these. And so, so off I went and I stood around looking slightly bewildered until this fellow came over and he was one of them. You know, he had muscles on his muscles and he had a, a shaven head and, and, and he looked like he'd been chasing stationary buses. He was quite flat of feature. And he came over and growled at me and, and said, what do you want to do? And so I said, well, I just want to sort of tighten up a little bit, you know. Um, so, so he said, follow me. And he took this card and we went around and he proceeded to put me through a program that I was going to follow. He, he prescribed the, the, the weights and the, the number of repetitions, and when he'd finished that, he gave me the card and walked off, and I proceeded to follow this program. And I almost died. <laughs> I, I was completely demoralized because I thought I was a complete wimp, but I, I followed through at, at, at great cost and with tremendous pain to the extent that when I walked into the changing room, I could not raise my arms to get my tracksuit top off the hook. I had to climb up on the bench and shove it off the hook with my shoulder. And then it fell on the floor and that was a problem as well because getting down there was agony. But when I finally had my tracksuit on, I, I sat and shivered on the bench for a while, trying not to throw up. And I thought I'm an absolute wimp. So I went home and recovered for about 10 days. And then I went back to the gym and went and took my dreaded card out of the folder and proceeded to start the process once again, thinking I'll crack it this time. And the owner of the gym strolled over after a while and he said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing my program. He said, oh, you're training for the Olympics. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're gonna kill yourself. I said, well, I'm just following the program that your guy told me to follow. He said, which one? I said, that one over there. He said, he doesn't work here. You have to be really careful who you follow. <laughs> now, I have no idea why he did that to me. He might have been aspiring to be a, a, a coach. He might just wanted to have laughed at the guy who couldn't use his arms when he went walking out to his car. It took me a long time to get home. But he, the consequence was I didn't get where I needed to go. In fact, it was worse than that. I was hindered from even making the progress that I had been making. During the time that Paul is writing to the Philippians, there were a bunch of guys going around, the people called the Judaizers, I can never pronounce it, blame it on the teeth. Um, but these guys were going around, and Antas mentioned them, and they were, they were purporting to be part of the way of Jesus Christ, to be part of the church. And they were saying to people, Jesus good. 
Jesus on the cross, good. But there's more that you have to do. You see, this is a message brought to us as Hebrews. And if you as Gentiles are taking it on as Gentiles, you need to become like us. So you need to get circumcised and you need to eat according to our regimes and you need to do the things that we need to do because that is necessary for you to be in the fullness of the purpose of what is going on here. And their motive was to twist and to bend what Jesus had taught. And, and Paul goes so far as to call them enemies of the cross. He says in verse 18 and 19, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's an incredibly powerful statement. That is an indictment. That is something I never, ever, ever would want to hear said of me in all of my life, that somebody would say an enemy of the cross of Christ. And yet these were people who were lifting themselves up as leadership and saying to people, follow us. And people were following them. Because Paul talks about this in many places, because this was one of the biggest challenges to the church at this time. And you can understand why. The best place to mess up a journey is right at the beginning. If you're taking off in a jet from Heathrow to 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 LA, and, and the guy gets his bearing out by one degree. By the time he's flown across the ocean at that slightly divergent angle, he's going to be nowhere near Los Angeles. You don't have to make him go 360 degrees in the wrong direction. Just bend him a little bit at the beginning. And so the enemy has got people in the church, enemies of the cross, who are there to divert people from the true way to go. And they're bringing these teachings which say, yes, we're not saying Jesus is wrong. We're not saying this isn't good news. We're just saying you haven't got the whole story. We will help you to know more. And Paul is saying to people, don't listen, don't follow, don't listen. And Paul is harsh in his criticism of these people. He says this, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now that's quite an interesting set of qualifications. Their destiny is destruction. That's quite a simple one. Just don't follow people into destruction. It hurts. It's not the way to go. But then he says this, their God is their stomach. And I read this and I thought, I don't understand this. Um, as somebody with a healthy appetite, I, I know what it's like to have a problem with what you stick in there. But what is, why does Paul go to the eating habits at this particular point? So I thought, Get a bit of help, and I'm not a, a scholar of Greek and Aramaic, but I, I went into the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, which if you don't have it, you can get it on your phone. It's a useful study tool. And it took me to what this word, their God is their stomach, or their God is their belly is. It's the word... That's Koilia. Koilia is the word that is used there. And it means, literally, a cavity in the abdomen... Figuratively, the heart or the womb, it's that space inside us where we put stuff. You know, in the simple way that I talk about faith, I believe this. Every person who's created in the image of God has a space inside them where God's supposed to fit. It's perfectly formed for the Holy Spirit of God. And if it's not filled, we have an emptiness inside us. And so we go around trying to fill it with money and power and sex and drugs and rock and roll. And people try everything to fill that empty space inside them. And experience tells us it doesn't work until one day they find Jesus and the Holy Spirit fills up that hollow space in their abdomen. But it's also referred to as a place, the heart or the womb. And it's the same word 
I want, you know, it's always useful when you look up a word in, in, in the original language to go and see where else is it used in the Bible. It's the same word which is used in John chapter 7 and verse 38, which I'm sure all of you can quote, but I'll read it to you. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow out from within them, from their belly. It's the same word. The word being used here is the place from which our essence flows, from which we, the overflow of our heart. Scripture says from the, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's the place from where we live our lives and from where we teach. And Paul is saying these people, their God is their own knowledge, their own wisdom, their own desires that they have filled their lives with, and that's what they're giving to you. They're not giving you the same rivers of living water that are spoken about earlier. They're giving you themselves and their opinions. They're giving you something that they've created. They've eaten and absorbed and believed lives, and that's what flows from them. And this is what they offer people to drink. And I would say this to you. You can't offer somebody anything that you haven't got. You can't walk up to someone and just say, would you like a chicken sandwich? Because if they say yes, you have to have a chicken sandwich, so you shouldn't go and do that unless you're carrying a chicken sandwich, What I don't do a lot of the time, but... If I was going to offer it, I'd make sure I did. But these people can't offer you the truth of Christ. They can't offer you the fullness of the, the rivers of living water that should be flowing from their belly because they haven't got it. What they've got is their own version of the gospel. What they've got is something that is different and is not designed to lead you where you should be going, but is designed to take you off course. And Paul is warning about this. He says their glory is their shame. You know, I, I think I've mentioned this before when I talked about something else, but this word glory always fascinated me. The glory of the Lord was upon them. And the glory of the Lord came down. Anybody know what the glory means? I struggled. What does it actually mean? Does it mean something glows in the dark? Is it like a, an aura or a halo? So I went and had a look at, at, at the original uh, scripture, and, and, and basically I, I went and I said, okay, in the, in, in the Greek... What is glory? And it said it's the word doxa. So I went to the concordance and I said, what does doxa mean? And it said it means glory. So I was a bit stymied there. <laughs> what sometimes helps when you're using these references is you go to the root word. And what I found there was it means very apparent. The glory of the Lord is the very apparent evidence of the Lord. It's the evidence and Something that you can note, the obviousness of God. When the glory of the Lord is on somebody, it's very obvious that God is with them. These people, Paul says, their glory is their shame. What's very obvious in their lives is their self-seekingness and their desire to be followed for their own purpose. And they're an enormous danger to the early church. And Paul speaks to them in very, very strong terms. You know, it sometimes makes you feel uncomfortable. Calling someone an enemy of the cross, that's very damning. Aren't we supposed to be loving? Shouldn't we use some kind of euphemism to describe them? But he's bald and brutal in saying these are enemies of the cross. And, and I begin to think, isn't Paul supposed to be a bit more like Jesus? Jesus would never say something like that, would he? Because he loved even sinners and prostitutes. But let's have a look at Jesus. One thing that is the only one I can find in the Bible, one thing moves Jesus to the kind of anger that we're going to hear now. And that's when people who are supposed to be in a place of leadership lead people into a place of danger and away from the truth. 
And I want to read to you from the book of Matthew. Jesus is in the temple courtyards in the week before he's crucified. He's come into Jerusalem and he's in his last time of teaching before he's going to be crucified. And he has been critical of the Pharisees all the way through. But at this point, they begin to plot against him and they begin to plan against him. And at this point, watch the gloves come off from gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. What? There is one thing that moves Jesus to say something like this to a human being. And that's when people have got to the point where their life and their response to what they know of God is not to lead people towards him, but to lead him away for their own purposes. Now I want to say this to you. What's this got to do with us? And the mic's falling apart. Okay, there we go. What's this got to do with us? Guys, when Satan finds a tactic that works, he sticks to it. There were Pharisees in the time of Jesus, people who purported to know the truth. There were many things in the law of Moses that had been brought in so that people would understand through symbolism their relationship with God. Things like sacrifice. You sinned, you were sorry, you repented, so you went and got something of value and you sacrificed it as a token of how much you were sorry and your repentance. It was an outward demonstration of something that had happened inside you first. What you first had to do was take responsibility for what you'd done wrong to repent and then you brought the sacrifice. It was a reminder. By the time Jesus comes under the leadership of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this is what people thought. I can sin as much as I like as long as I burn some animals. There's no real repentance. We don't hear, the first person we hear preaching repentance is John the Baptist and he comes with this new message, repent. And he says to people, it's not okay that you just do the stuff. You've got to change the way that you live. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were supposed to be the people who were leading Israel had led them not towards Jesus, but to something, not towards God, but towards something similar. He'd brought in one of the greatest idols of all time that had brought in religion. Not relationship, not truth, but a set of laws, a set of practices, a set of rituals that make you feel better. Have you noticed how many people are seekers? They're looking for something to fill that space inside. And I remember once on, on a mission trip, we were on the, on the southeast coast of India in a place called Pondicherry, which is like a, a gathering point for all sorts of new age and, and, and weird stuff. And, and there's a, a group of people there that live in a place called Oroville, which was started by a, a guru called Sri Oribanda and his concubine who was called The Mother. And they are buried in, in, in Pondicherry and people go and worship at their tomb. And we snuck in one night when they were having their evening meditations and we went and sat there and prayed for their salvation. I don't know if they, what they would have done if they found out, but I remember sitting there and people had come from all over the world. There were people from all over the world, from the Western world, dressed in saris, trying to look like the local people and meditating in front of two piles of bones inside tombs looking for something because there was something they could do. There was something 
different that they could do. There was something that other people weren't doing. They felt just a little bit exotic, finding spirituality in front of a tomb full of dry old bones. I read some of his stuff. It was budgie psychology. You really wonder how people, but people had been led into this by their desire to find something they could do, something different, something. The Pharisees gave people the rituals. Easy, you do the stuff and you're okay with God and there's nothing changed inside you. Jesus comes, John the Baptist comes, prepares the way for Jesus, says repent. Jesus comes and says, here I am, the kingdom of God. And he brings a message that says, you are saved by grace through faith and not of your own works, lest any man should boast. And it's a free gift from God. And anybody, anybody, anybody can come to God and repent of their sins and receive eternal life and be on the road to run that race to the reward in heaven. And Satan goes, what am I going to do? Oh, I know what works. I'll send some new Pharisees into the church. They will go in saying, we will lead, and we will tell you that that message that you got, that's great. But there's other stuff that you have to do, and we are the ones that will show you how to do it. So follow us. And you know what? He still does it today. The church is growing and the church is flourishing and people are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and every now and then the new thing comes up. Somebody who has something that is the gospel plus. We love Jesus, we sing the songs and this is the gospel and now do it my way. Just a little bit different and the goal as it was with the Pharisees and as it was in this time is to eventually get people focusing on the difference. Are you part of that movement? They've got this thing that they do really, really well. People from all over the world are traveling there. That's where God is. Have you noticed? Kind of weird because I was told that he's going to be with all of us wherever we go. But somehow God seems to be here. And everybody has to travel by boat and by plane and by ship to meet God here because this is where God is doing the new thing. And then God goes there and does another new thing. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't bring new stuff into the church. But this is the thing. The message stays the same. Paul says, follow me and those who are like me because I'm following the truth. And I would say this to you, I don't care who stands up here. Me, and Ed, Mike, anybody that preaches in the church, any visiting person. The moment we preach something to you that is not in God's word and does not line up with God's word, walk away. Walk away. And for that reason, I would say this to you, Go and check that it's true. I could be telling you the biggest lot of collie wobbles today if you haven't read it. Go and read your Bible. You know, I teach children, I teach some of them RS, and I challenge them, how much of what you know in the Bible have you read yourself? And how much is what you've been told secondhand? And you've had a really good teaching on it. I once had a child in a GCSE mock examination tell a parable which was actually an illustration I'd used in assembly. I was very flattered, but it wasn't in the Bible. Just for a moment or two, I was in there amongst the writers. <laughs> but actually, that's shocking. Because what Paul wants these people to develop is that they need to fill their belly 
with the truth of God's word and with the truth of God's teaching so that out of them can flow rivers of living water. And we need to become so familiar with the truth of God that when a lie comes along, before we even know what it is, our little bell goes off and says, this doesn't fit. Bible talks about wolves in, in sheep's clothing. When somebody starts teaching something that's right, the little arrow should start going, there's something wrong here. I use this example sometimes. I'm told, I don't know if it's true, it might be apocryphic, but apparently some of the best guys in recognizing forged notes, currency in the world, are the American IRS agents. They can spot, the dollar's actually a very bad design. Have you noticed? Dollar's, I think, one of the only currencies where all the denominations are the same size. Much more easy to, to forge than having different sizes and different shapes. But these guys apparently are experts. They pick up a forgery and they know straight away it's a forgery before they even know why. They just know there's something wrong. And they never, ever, ever train them on forgeries. They just train them on the real thing. They smell it, they rub it, they eat it, they, well, they don't eat it. They, 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 they sleep it. They, they handle it until the point that they are so familiar with the real dollar note that when they pick one up and it's not real, before they even know if it's the shade or the smell or the color or the ink, they know there's something wrong. We need to be so immersed in following those who have rivers of living water, the truth of God's word in their belly. We need to be so set on that that when someone comes along with a new thing that is not a new thing, it's something that's not God's word, before we even know, before we can quote scripture and verse, we say, that's not right. I'm not following that person. I will fix my eyes on Jesus. I will fix my eyes on his word. Guys, if we think that the enemy is satisfied with what we're doing and he's just going to let us get on with it, we're fools. He doesn't like you. The moment you start doing something for Jesus, he likes you even less. And he will try and stop you. And you know, some people think the best way to avoid the devil coming against me is just do nothing. He'll probably still kick you as he goes past. It's in his nature. It's in his nature. So what do we need to do? The armor of God. And part of that is having his word living inside us. And Paul knows that. These people are in a hostile environment. Philippi is a hostile environment for, for, for the faith in Jesus Christ. It's a challenging place. And we're in a hostile environment. Loads of people out there think we're completely potty. Us and our imaginary friend called Jesus. And you are called by God to go out there and change this. He's going to come with every while and every trick. And some of the things that are offered are so much easier than the way that we walk. And that little arrow needs to go and say, not me. Not me. And Paul wanted that for them then. And Paul wants that for us now because I love how it ends. He says that their destination is earthly. Their desires are earthly. They want recognition now. They want fame now. The Pharisees loved nice clothes Recognition, sitting in the good seats in, 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 in uh, the synagogue and people buying to them and scraping to them. It's short-term earthly gain that they're looking for. He says this in verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await, eagerly await a savior from there, excuse me, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I'm gonna get a new belly one that is filled with living water as my natural state that I'm in. I'm heading for that reward which is being like him, not being subject to being pulled left and right by what's going on in my life and by the temptations, but with my goal set in that heavenly place where he is able to transform me and make me everything. And said yes last week, I listened to his podcast, he's going to have a full head of hair um, in, his, in his heavenly body. I, I, I hope so, but you know, they're miracles and they're miracles, but... You know. <laughs> 
We're trusting God for that one. Um, but it's going, to be, it's going to be transforming when we get there. Down here, we've got to be careful and follow the right people. Don't be somebody lining up for the race, completely fit, strong, filled with patience and perseverance and all of those things, and the gun goes off and we run all over the place. Run in his word. Walk with his word so that we will achieve that wonderful reward that we have. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your teaching and your word. Thank you that it's the one true thing that we can follow. And thank you for, for the care that has been shown by people like Paul as your servant to warn us with the dangers of walking away and for the encouragement we have of the reward that is there if we choose to follow you. Help us, Lord, to be good examples. Help us to follow good examples. Help us to choose well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to stay, <coughs> to stay for a cup of tea and a biscuit and to meet some people. Thank you for being here this morning and God bless you.